It was in Bethany where John the Baptist was active and engaged doing his work, baptizing people unto repentance. The scripture tells us where Christ came. He comes to be baptized and he is and there's a magnificent, miraculous presence of God that's there and, and a dove that descends and John understands who Jesus is. He knows he is more than just a man. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He, he's already made the declaration, or he, he makes the declaration that Christ must increase and John must decrease. And, and that's one thing to say, but it's another thing when it directly impacts your personal ministry, your personal activity, and your personal work in a day-to-day basis. And, and we see that the next day after Jesus is baptized, that he comes back to the river where John is baptizing him. And there are two of John's disciples that are there, and they decide that they're no longer going to follow John, but they will follow Jesus. That's got to be a little bit hard on everybody's ego, on everybody's pride, but, but no wonder Jesus said that John was one of the greatest prophets that ever was. He, he allows this to occur. He understands truly. He, de- he doesn't just m- mime the words that Christ must increase and he must de- decrease, but he lives it. He, he allows his disciples to leave him and to be with Christ. And, and as they go with Christ, they ask, uh, they ask him, you know, where do you live? And he says, come and I'll show you. And they go and, and those two disciples of previously of John's, but now Jesus is spend the day with him. And, and it's at the end of that day that one of those disciples goes back home. That one disciple's name is Andrew. And he goes home and he talks to his brother, Peter. And he tells Peter, we have found the Christ. We have found the anointed one. And and as I was reading through those scriptures and I was reading through the word of God and it it just kind of stood out to me uh, that this was, this wasn't just, uh, you know, Peter wasn't responding to Andrew saying, huh? What are, what are you talking about? But, but this longing and this hunger to know and to see the Messiah come was a common conversation that was had amongst them. It was obviously a part of the conversation that was in this home. It was amongst these brethren. I'm, brethren, I'm sure that, uh, that as the conversation around the dinner table ensued, that, that the conversation about the Christ, the anointed one, was a part of dialogue. It was a part of a regular conversation. So when, when Andrew says, I found the one. He's already studied at the feet of John. He's already watched men and women come to that place of repentance, of powerful life change, of turnaround. He's he's already observed that, but now there's another greater prophet that's moved on the scene, and he doesn't want his family to be left out. I, I love the spirit of Andrew because he's not all about himself. He's about who can I invite to be a part of what God wants to do, and, and I, I, I hope that that just kind of bleeds through the scripture into our lives tonight. I hope there's somebody that we're thinking about right now that we wish they would know the Christ that we know. I, I hope that becomes a part of our activity. I, the other thing that stood out to me was that Peter was willing to hang the nets up for the day and he dropped anchor on his boat. He ties it up to the dock and he follows his brother blindly to talk to this man from Nazareth. He follows his brother blindly because he simply said, come and you got to hear this guy teach you. You got to meet this one that I believe is the anointed Christ. You've got to come. And Peter steps aside from his daily activity to do that. That's a, that's a big task for many of us today. But we see it right here in scripture. 
I know that we look at Peter as the impetuous one, the, the reactionary one, the lightning rod for trouble, the, the one always ready to create a problem. But I, we see another picture of Peter in this verse and that he really genuinely hungers to know God. I just want to make a simple declaration tonight. There's more Peters out there right now. There's more Peters hungry to know God. And you may be the Andrew that leads them to him. Scripture in John 1 verse 42 says, And he, Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, that Jonah thou shalt be called Cephas. This is, this is Jesus' introduction to Peter. And immediately he declares him to be, Scripture says, a stone. A stone. We know that later... Jesus is going to be more elaborate in his description of who Peter is and what Peter is. But we know that the rock, Christ Jesus, called Peter a stone on his first interaction with him. I'd I, I just like us to know tonight that every one of us are stones that Jesus is calling today. If this is the first sermon that you've heard or if this is the first time that anyone's ever made that declaration over your life that God has a purpose and a plan for you, then, then you can know, like Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, you're, you're called, I'm going to call you Cephas because you are a stone. I, I want to make the same declaration through the word of God over somebody's life tonight that you are Cephas, you are a stone. And that stone, God has a great purpose for. That stone God has a great plan for. It was in Gideon's vision that he had. It was a stone that rolled. Come on there. Uh, it, it was a bread that rolled down the hill and, and did that work. But God wants you to become something simple, something so simple like a stone to accomplish the work of God. Be that stone. You say a stone. What? How common is a stone? It's under our feet every day. It's, it's what's we, what we sweep up off the floor. It's what we want to get rid of. It's, it's annoying when we're trying to grow our lawn. It gets in our way when we're driving our car up the road. It's a stone. We don't want the stones. But, but Christ has a purpose and a plan for you to be a stone. A stone. 1 Peter 2 and 4, later when Peter penned these words, he leans on the word picture of stones with good reason. He understood the allegory personally. He, he had been called the stone, but he wants us to know about that stone, and he wants us to know that we are stones. He references Jesus in this way in 1 Peter 2 and 4, to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed, indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, ye also, someone say me, as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, an holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed." You see, all through scripture, God has been the picture of a rock. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 states, he is the rock. 
His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. He is stable in the midst of instability. He is solid in the midst of trouble. He is, he is just steadfast. He is that rock. His work is perfect. All of his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. I, I, I'm so grateful that in the midst of a tumultuous time, when we don't know where to turn for truth, you can't look to a headline for truth. You can't even, you, sometimes you can't even look to the people around you. Everybody is confused and everybody is, is just kind of in that position of not knowing what's happening. That God is that rock. His work is perfect and his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. When you don't know where to look around, take a look heavenward because that's where you're going to find truth. Sometimes we just need to recalibrate. Sometimes we just kind of need to reset. We need to be restored. We need to look to the rock that his work is perfect. It isn't just in Deuteronomy. You can look through the Psalms. Psalms 28 and verse 1. Unto thee will I cry, O Lord, my rock. Psalm 68 verse 2. He only is my rock and my salvation. He's my defense and I shall not be moved. So when Peter referred to Christ as the living stone, he drew that strong parallel. We have that God, that God of the Old Testament. But Jesus in the New Testament is the same as that God of the Old Testament. One God. And he declares him as such. Disallowed of men. But chosen of God and precious. God had a plan in his mind for humanity from the very beginning. Chosen. A chosen plan. A living stone that was chosen. Chosen to be used. Jesus was that living stone because he was that living God. God's plan enveloped in flesh. God's purpose manifest. Walked in shoe leather. Accomplished works amongst us. Went to that Roman cross to die for our sins. God had a plan. Chosen of God. But it was a precious, precious plan. We are living stones. We are that living stone also born again into that living hope. It's a lively hope in first Peter verses one and three. So we have a living stone, but we also have a living hope. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. We have a living stone, but we have a living hope, a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we are living stones born again into a living hope through the power of the living word. Those three things we see in scripture and Peter brings them out because he knows what it's like to be that rock used by Christ. First Peter 1 and verse 22 says, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. We have a living word, we have a living hope, and we have a living stone. So we aren't talking about things that are dead. I, I'm grateful today that God is a God of the living. He's not a God of the dead. And I want to be a part of that hope that's declared of living stones. I want to be a part of that living hope. And I want to live in that living word. I want God to accomplish all of that life-giving, life more abundantly in our lives today. That living hope is ours. But Jesus isn't just a living stone. He is the living 
chief cornerstone. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 6 and 7, it says, Wherefore, also it's contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. It's that living stone. He said, he said, unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, someone say disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. You know, we have cornerstones in our buildings. They're decorative stones. They are indicators of uh, times in our past where this construction occurred and they're indicators usually sometimes they're dedicated to individuals who were key members or key people to help us accomplish the work but but we all know or maybe we don't but I'll declare it that that cornerstones in the Old Testament weren't just stones that were for memories they weren't just kind of beautiful pieces of granite that were etched with letters to to tell us different things that happened or dates when buildings were constructed cornerstones in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament in, in, in Bible times were, were critical elements in construction. They were stones that allowed pieces to come together. They were, they were the keystone of an archway and that archway without that center chief cornerstone, that chief stone would fall down because they, they wouldn't be able to sustain them, some, themselves. The construction wouldn't be complete without that individual significant stone that held everything together it was the cornerstone where the foundation was connected and it tied the building together that chief cornerstone accomplishing his, his its work well well that's what Christ was too he wasn't just a living stone he was the chief cornerstone and and he links things together he links the old testament and the new testament together jesus is in the old testament contained but in the new testament jesus is explained why because he's that chief cornerstone he brings the scripture together he he taught his disciples in luke 24 and verse 27 he said and beginning at moses and all the prophets he talked to his disciples he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself he began to tell them, he said, it, it isn't just two uh, ideologies, it isn't two uh, dis, uh, dispensations in time. He said, this work that I am doing is a fulfillment of what was declared in the old. Here I am in this dispensation, but I am completing, I am, I am the compelling for, force of what happened and what was declared in the Old Testament it's him, and he expounded that to them. What was he? He was that chief cornerstone bringing things together. He, he was bringing those walls together. He was bringing the, that building and that construction together. He was bringing the picture of that building together. He brings together, so he brings together Old and New Testament, but not just that, he brings nations together. There was no Jew or Gentile. There's no racism, racism in any apostolic church period. We hunger, we long for, we want all nations under this roof. We, we want all nations to work together, not just under this roof, but I'm so grateful we had some of our, our staff joining with uh, a local family uh, here in our neighborhood that, that are from Syria, from another country that are here living in our community, but they took time last night to be, to be together with them and spend time with them and drink some heavy-duty coffee late at night, keeping them awake half the night. But why? Why? Because, because there isn't a distance between us and any nation. We are one nation in him. 
No racism in the church. He, he said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that in that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. He shows this divide that was there between two nations, between two groups of people. He said, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were who were afar off have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. And verse 14 sums it up for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. That division is demolished. That separation has been annihilated in Christ. There isn't that division there. Because to be a part of the church that he has called us to be, that church that he is building, we can't build the church that God wants us to build with divides and separations and racial prejudice and, and, and saying, well, you're, you're from this nation or you're from this culture or you're from, you, you know, that that's not the church. God says we're going we're gonna to break down the middle wall of partition between us. No separation, no division. And that's God's plan for the church. And he accomplishes it through us. But first he models it for us. Let's talk about Jesus for a minute. That's all right, isn't it? Let's talk about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the chosen stone. He is unique. There isn't anybody like him. There isn't anyone like him. No one can take his place. He is the chosen one. Two, Jesus is a precious stone. We use that word metal, precious metals. We use that word for stones, precious stones. Everything about Jesus is precious. In the scripture, you'll find even Peter, he said in first, chap, uh, first Peter chapter 1, verse 19, it was but with the precious blood of Christ, because the blood of Christ is precious. It's precious faith in Second Peter 1 and 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith. It's precious blood. It's precious faith. Even in Jesus, even our trials are precious. In First Peter 1 and 7, it says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So it's precious faith, it's precious blood, but more than that, it's even the trials that we face if we're in Christ. They become precious, even more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. God has a perfect, precious plan for the trouble that's in your life. God has a plan for it. You know, precious means honor as well as value in those scriptures. And, and uh, you know, I was trying to think of a, an explanation for this, and, I, and this is what I came up with. Now, you can have gold as in metal, or you can have gold as in metal. A gold metal or gold metal? Gold's valuable. Right now, gold is about $55 a gram. Gold's valuable. But, you know, I, I found out that gold metals, even though they're the gold medals that they give to athletes, the Olympics, gold medals, this shocked me a bit. They're, they're mostly constructed of silver, around 99% silver in a gold medal. Metal, M-E-D-A-L. So if you just said it's 
silver, that 925 silver, if you take that 586 grams that every one of those gold medals are worth and you get the street value of silver, this is the selling price somewhere, maybe around 50 cents a gram, that, that gold medal that hangs around that athlete's neck maybe worth somewhere around $243. That's, that's not a whole lot. I mean, you and I could buy a gold medal, the value of it, the street value of it, for about 250 bucks. However, the honor of that medal when it's placed around an athlete's neck is worth far more than $250. That gold medal honors the dedication. It honors the time that that athlete invested. It honors the effort that was exerted on their part to become that winner on the podium, that work, that sacrifice. And, and that medal all of a sudden becomes a whole lot more valuable because of the honor that's bestowed upon it. It is a valuable medal. It's precious. So what Jesus was trying to tell us that, that the trial of our faith is much more precious than that of gold. It's precious faith. It's precious blood. It's, it's honorable and valuable. It's worth something because of its value, but it's worth something because of how honored it is in our lives. We esteem it. We place it above everything else. I, I want to have a precious faith that, that in the face of adversity and in the face of trouble and trial, that I'm still willing to walk trusting God. Why? Because that's precious faith. It, it comes at a price. It's precious faith. That precious blood of the lamb, it washes sins way away. That's precious blood. I, I want that precious blood at work in our lives. And, and even the precious trials, we're in one. That the trial of our faith being much more precious than of gold that perish, perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I want those trials to be precious in my life. That's not easy to do, but that's what Jesus was saying. He was, he was that precious stone, and we allow that precious work to happen in us if we model Christ's work as the precious stone. He was a dependable stone. He was, he was a stone that was consistent. He was uh, they could predict what Christ was going to do. He was dependable. And if we trust in him, the Bible says in 1 Peter 2 and 6, he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. NIV puts it this way, shall not be put to shame. That if we believe on him, if we believe on him as that cornerstone, the elect stone, the precious stone, that he that believes on him shall not be confounded. God said, if you put your trust in me, I'm dependable. I won't ever let you down. He is a dependable stone. He is, <clears throat> he is also the rejected stone. We read it already, but let me refresh it in your hearing. He said that in 1 Peter 2, verse 7, unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders allow, disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. When Jesus came, he was rejected by the experts of the day. That's concerning to us because we declare that we are people of the word. I want to, we, we need to be careful. We need to be careful because he was rejected by the experts of the day. He wasn't what they expected. And scripture tells us that they rejected him. How did they reject him? How did they reject the stone? They rejected him by their disobedience to the word. 
1 Peter 2 and 8, even to them which stumble at the word, the Bible says being disobedient. I want to be obedient to the word. I'm so grateful for the preaching and the teaching that we hear at CCC. I'm grateful for what our young people hear. I'm thankful for what our children hear. It's the word. But I don't want to hear the word and then be disobedient and walk my own way. Because the Bible says that at that point, that word becomes a stumbling block in my life. At that point, when I just said, well, I'll take this, but I don't think all that's necessary. And the Bible says that that disobedience causes men to stumble. I don't want to stumble in this day, in this age. We can't afford to stumble. The word disobey here means not able to be persuaded. Why? Why couldn't they be been persuaded? They, I think the answer is that they were caught in their own traditional interpretations. And we've seen that. We've seen that since the 1900s, the outpouring of the Spirit, that there are still groups of people, groups of believers that reject tongues. They reject the necessity of repentance and baptism and spirit infilling they 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 say it's unnecessary that faith is the only thing that you need and and they reject this plan that peter preached on the day of pentecost for the birth of the church they reject it they turn from it and it's a necessity but why would you reject that why would you turn away from that why would you be disobedient why would you be willing to stumble at that point when it's right there in scripture and i'm so grateful for All it is is creating the opportunity for someone to take advantage of the gospel in their life. Why why would we miss out on that? It was uh, Sunday night was so simple, such a simple lesson, such a simple topic, but just just a simple encouragement for someone to be baptized in the name of Jesus because there were no delayed baptisms in the New Testament. Encouraged someone and and just kind of allowed them to step over the line of decision and and be baptized in Jesus' name. That wasn't hard. It wasn't difficult. It's just simple obedience. But why is obedience so difficult? I'll tell you why. Because we are willful and active in wanting our own way. Sometimes we've just got to humble ourselves before God and be obedient. Jesus has a plan for every one of us to continue in obedience and become what he had called us to be. Jesus was a carpenter's son. He had learned the family trade, but he had always declared, I must be about my father's business. That didn't mean he wanted to sharpen up on Joseph's skills in the shop, but he had a purpose and a plan to save the world. And his project, he, he didn't finish building when he left that little shop in Nazareth. But he just changed projects to include people like you and I. And so if he is the stone that we just spoke about, all, all that imagery of a living stone, then we have the opportunity to become that in our own lives. It was to Peter that he said, and un- that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's still building. He's not building with wood now. He's building the church now. He's still building. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And that church is still in construction phase because it includes everyone under the sound of our voice. We mentioned a moment ago about no divisions in cultures and countries. Ephesians 2.19, it it, it declares that now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens 
fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. You don't have to get perfect in order to become a part of what God is building. Why? Because we're growing. We're growing into what God is allowing us to become. He continued, in whom ye also are builded together for a spiritual, for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That building is in construction, and that building isn't stones and bricks, but that building includes you. I know who I am. I'm a stone in God's construction project. We can come back to the music this evening. In the same way that Jesus was the chosen stone, so are you. You've been chosen. It's not coincidence we're talking tonight and you're hearing. It's not a coincidence that the call that you sense in your spirit is coming right now. That's not a coincidence. It's because God is choosing you. A living stone. He was a living stone, so are you. You're no longer dead in sin. You don't have to die in sin, but you can come alive in Christ buried in waters of baptism, rise to walk in newness of life. Life. No longer dead, a living stone. You're a precious stone. He was that precious stone, but so are you. There's nobody like you. We can't replace you. We can't duplicate you. We can't, we can't create you. You have got to be you and become a part of this construction that God is building. You need to be a dependable stone. You must be faithful and continue to the very end. Don't quit part way. You may be a rejected stone, but in, in the face of rejection, in the face of humiliation, be the stone that God has called you to be because you are a part of the construction. You're a part of the church today. You're a part of what God intended. He saw from the beginning his plan, his bride, his church it's incomplete without you you notice that it's not about an isolated stone you can't be a lone ranger Christian and be a part of a building a brick alone can't build a wall you've got to be a brick in the wall one of our minister, my minister for brother, brother McNair sent that to me this afternoon you can't, you can't just be a brick alone. You've got to be a brick in the wall. You've got to be a part of the construction. Now every one of us in our own place accomplishing our own purpose becomes the church that God is creating. One of the great privileges that I had when Kathy and I got married was the opportunity to get to know Pop Tracy. Nana and Pop. The word Tracy means ingenious and I don't know if they coined the definition after he was born, but he sure lived up to the meaning of his name. I always enjoyed visiting Nan and Pop. Their home was heavily impacted by his head and his hand. He, he built something in every little nook and cranny, and his, his fingerprints were all over that whole home that they lived in. Maybe if you were getting ready to go upstairs, you'd see the spiral staircase that he built. Spiral staircase, so it made it easy to move from one level to the next and, and didn't take up a lot of floor space in that modest home that they had. So 
he had built the spiral staircase. Simple innovation that made daily tasks easier. Maybe it was a, a string through a little eyelet so that he could turn the light on over his chair without having to reach behind him to click the light. He could just reach ahead and pull a little string. He had kind of routed it through an eyelet over to the back, back connected to the light switch. He'd just give it a little tug and the light would come on, a, a little tug and the light would go off. He was, he was ingenious. He, he was brilliant like that. Removable railings that he had on his deck so that he could just pull a section of the railing up and set it aside when it snowed. And then instead of lifting the snow over the side of the deck, he would just push it off. Genius. He had a little uh, inverter rigged up to his car so that he could run his oil furnace, his oil, oil miser furnace in case they had lost power. But all kinds of little things like that. You'd only have to walk around. And those are just, just a couple examples. I, I got more. But one of the most significant constructions that he accomplished in his home was this massive rock fireplace in the midst of the living room. It wasn't made out of brick. It wasn't Shaw brick. It hadn't been ordered in from Chipman. It wasn't those bricks that were all unique and uniform and perfect. His, it was beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It was, he had a very keen eye for an attention to detail. He was a bit of a perfectionist. You could see that in his work. But his fireplace was made out of this river stone that he had gone down to the Lake Utopia waterfront and picked off of the shore and picked out of the riverside and, and brought home everyone unique, everyone significant, everyone unlike its partner, unique in its size, unique in its placement. And, and I'm certain that as he constructed that fireplace that he had to pick the right stone to fit in the right place on that section of wall that he was building in order for that fire to, to be routed properly. He had little ducts built into the fire so that when the stone would heat up, there would be a, an air, a way for the air to come through and heat the room. And, and, and every stone, when you're working with natural elements, when you're working with those stones that were just pulled from the riverbed or pulled from the side of the shore, every stone was unique. It, it, it had its own particular shape and, and you couldn't just kind of create this perfect wall, but every stone had to be placed in its own spot where it kind of fit. And sometimes I think we get frustrated because God may be waiting to use us in a particular place when we feel like, why hasn't God used me the way that I wish that he had already? Can I, can I just let you know it's because he's building, he's in the process of building his church and maybe your time isn't yet, maybe your time isn't right now, but God has you set aside, God has you in, in preparation, God's planning great things for your life. You're gonna be a part of this church, you wanna be a part of this church, you need to be a part of this church, but, but we can't build what God wants to build without you. You say, Pastor Jack, are you just talking to the people in Fredericton? Are you just talking to your local church family? No, I, I'm talking about bigger things tonight. I'm talking about the church globally. I'm talking about what God wants to do all around our world. God wants to use you. And so he creates this model for us to follow of himself. And as we live our lives, he's placing us in that wall construct the work that he's intending on, on building through each of us. And I think some of what we're challenged with right now, the problem that we're facing, it's real. The virus is real. I don't think we can debate that, but, 
But I believe that men can morph circumstances for their own benefits, and I believe that anything as ambiguous and as unknown that we're facing right now as a society and as a world, it can be used to further individuals' agendas. I, I, I also know that God is in control of it all. So even those men that are attempting to leverage this circumstance for their own benefits or their own agendas, that may be happening, but I also believe that God is fully at work and God is leveraging his own plan in the midst of everything that's happening. But we've been around long enough to know that the enemy always picks weak links to break the most powerful chains. And so in the close of my lesson tonight to the church, the church locally and the church globally is don't allow yourself to be that weak link. Satan is crafty and deliberate. And I believe he hates the body of believers that build up this spiritual house called the church. And I'm not dismissing the fact that the church can work from house to house. But I think we need to acknowledge the need to be together. And I believe that Satan's number one goal is to make us believe that we can be effective in our isolation. And to a degree that's true. But it's not completely true. And he loves to work with partial truths. My question tonight is why would the scripture put so much emphasis on our action toward one another and our conduct one to another and our activities based in accomplishing and working together? Why would that all be in scripture for us in the end times, in the most critical season of the church for us to be isolated? I don't believe that that is necessary either. And so I'm challenging you to pray that truth, the truth that, of what God declared is, would come to the surface and that we would be the church, that body of believers fitly joined together would become what God is calling us to be. Independence and isolation aren't the accomplishment and fruition of a church that started together. Why would the birth of the church, Acts 2, occur when they were all in one place and in one accord if God intended for us to end this? With nothing linking us together but a few Wi-Fi networks and a world wide web, I don't believe that that's true either. So we've got to pray more than we've ever prayed before that God would open the doors and that God would create this connection that we need as the church. We need to pray that this disease dies. And we need to pray that the plague is stayed. And we need to pray that we have the opportunity to assemble together so much the more as we see the day approaching. Let's be that church. That church built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Lively stones built up into a spiritual house. We need to be that church. So much the more as we see that day approaching. 
I'm not criticizing anybody. I don't have anybody in the crosshairs of my lesson tonight. I, I'm just saying that, that I am so desirous to be back together with the people of God. And, and I know that, that God can work through borders and barriers. We, we've prayed. We've watched God work between here and the nation of Pakistan by webcast. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dismantling everything that God can do through any of that. But I don't want to miss the opportunity of being what God is calling us to be in the here and now. We need to be the church. And so we need to pray. We need to pray that God would give us favor. We need to pray that, that God would open the doors of opportunity. We need to pray that for the miraculous to occur. If Aaron could run in the camp of Israel and the plague be stayed because he had a censer in his hand and a purpose in his heart, then the church of today, if we have a censer in our hand of prayer and we begin to pray and we have a purpose in our heart, then I believe that the plague can be stayed and God's purpose can be accomplished and this end time, active, engaged, revival, church can see the work that God wants to do in our world let's pray together father I thank you for simple challenge from your word tonight Lord if I'd said anything out of order anything that God seems to chafe somebody the wrong way I pray that my heart would be released and my heart would be revealed that they would know that's not my intention but I do intend I'm fighting a devil I do intend on fighting the enemy that's at work in our world today. We don't want to dismiss. God, we don't want to be dismissive of what he's attempting, division, discord. I, I pray that you would allow us to come together. I pray that, God, that we would be that union, that body of believers that is joined together, that if we've got ought with one another, I pray that we would make it right, leave our gift at the altar and make it right with each other. I, I ask that you would unify us. God, bring us together before we're brought together. And when we're together, Jesus, I pray that miracles are gonna happen, revival's gonna come. God, I pray for those in levels of leadership that are making decisions. God, I pray that you would give us favor. I pray that you would give them wisdom. God, I pray that every lie would be dismissed. I ask that truth would triumph. God, let your word be declared. In Jesus' name we pray. Let that continue to be a part of your prayer. We are so grateful to be a part of the church that you're involved in today. Why don't we sing a chorus as we're getting ready to close. I'll stand with arms high